Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for the gift of worship, which is purchased by the blood and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for these faithful saints at Fisherville. Thank you, Lord, for the love that you have birthed in them for the Word of God. We pray today that by your Spirit, the very Spirit of Christ, we could feed them that very Word and nourish them this morning. And Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, that they would hear that glorious and beautiful gospel. And Lord, that by your effectual call, they would, they would come in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus and receive forgiveness of sins. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the story of the bad little boy who didn't come to grief, Mark Twain describes the mischief of a boy named Jim. He says, unlike what the Sunday school books say about what happens to such boys, nothing bad ever happens to Jim. For example, once he climbed up in Farmer Acorn's apple tree to steal apples, and the limb didn't break, and he didn't fall and break his arm and get torn by the farmer's great dog and then languish on a sickbed for weeks and repent and become good. Then there was the time he went boating on Sunday and he didn't get drowned. And that time he got caught out in the storm when he was fishing on Sunday and didn't get struck by lightning. After recalling one unique providence after another, the story concludes with Jim all grown up now. Twain points out how Jim got wealthy by all manner of cheating. And now he's the wickedest scoundrel in his village and is universally respected and belongs to the legislature. Well, this story has resonated with readers ever since it was published in 1875 because we, the image of God, and with the law of God written on our hearts, are hardwired for justice. Now, as sinners, we don't like justice when it's personally rendered to us. But we want justice, to use Amos 5.24 language, to roll down like water on all that we perceive to be unjust. And that's why the scripture often encourages the people of God with hopeful notes. Like, for instance, Psalm 92 verse 7. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Well, that day has now come for King Saul. Now, this chapter in 1 Samuel uh, 31 is actually resuming the story of chapter 28. It's only after some few hours in which Saul has approached the, the witch at Endor and ate a meal with the which at Endor, when he heard from the dead and buried Samuel the haunting words from 
as we can see in chapter 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand. Verse 19, the Lord will give Israel with, uh, also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Samuel is telling Saul this is going to happen tomorrow. That's chapter 28. Chapter 31 is now tomorrow. So that's where we are. And the first thing we see here from this text, what happens when justice brings judgment. Now, notice in verse 1, the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now, before I get into this, I, I do think it would be wise for me to address an issue that is very prevalent in our culture today. Today, critical race theory and feminism and intersectional theory and the LGBT advocacy groups, progressive immigration, animal rights, and the list continues are all parodies that are parading under this rubric of social justice. But when you study the scriptures, the word justice is found in the ESV over 130 times, never with an adjective before the term, except for one time. In Ezekiel chapter 14, the term, or Ezekiel 18 rather, verse 8, the term true justice is used. And so we need to make that distinction when I use the word justice. And so when justice is used in the Bible, it often is linked with equity. Now what is equity? Equity is equal treatment for everyone under the law. That does not mean equal outcomes. It means equal treatment for everyone no matter the ethnicity, no matter the sex, no matter the demographic group, equal treatment for everyone under the law, not equal outcomes. That's socialism, even communism. It's also linked with righteousness, that which is consistent with God's law, which includes punishment of evildoers and penalties that fit the crime under the law. And so when I use the term justice here in this passage, that's what I'm referring to. Justice, penalties that fit the crime. In this particular case, the penalties that are coming to King Saul. And we see, notice, in verse 1, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. It, it, it kind of reminds me growing up, and you would, you would be looking forward to a movie, but a game went long, and, and, and then you would, you would see these words, now we join the movie in progress. You could say here, now we join the battle at Gilboa in progress. Now, the writer could have placed this chapter immediately after chapter 28. Chronologically, that makes sense, because in chapter 28, the the, the witch at Endor has told Saul, tomorrow 
the Philistines are going to come upon you. Or it's actually Samuel who told him that. Uh, and here it is in chapter 30. So chronologically, chapter 30 follows, or chapter 31 follows chapter 28. But instead, what the writer does, he switches to the narrative on David in chapters 29 and 30. Now, why does he do that? Well, he's conveying that what's happening here in chapter 31 is happening simultaneously with what is happening in chapters 29 and 30. Now, in chapter 29, we saw that the Philistines were about to go to battle against Saul and the Israelites. And by God's providence, David was spared from that battle. And then in chapter 30, they go back to Ziklag and they realize that their, their possessions have been destroyed and their families have been taken by the Amalekites. And so, a hundred miles south of what we see here, David is routing the Amalekites. That's what we saw in chapter 30. And here, what we see is that Israel is fleeing the Philistines. So the writer intends for us to see both pictures. Now you could read chapter 31 without regard for chapter 30 and you get a, a thin understanding of what's going on, but he wants us to have a thicker interpretation of what's going on. And so as the true king, the anointed king, is routing the Amalekites and restoring all that was lost, here under the parody of the true king, you see that Israel is fleeing. Now, that word flee, we've seen Israel flee two other times in 1 Samuel. The last time we saw Israel flee was when they were facing the Philistines' champion Goliath. And that term is used in 1 Samuel 17. They fled the scene. The first time we saw it was in chapter 4. Now, that particular scene brought devastating consequences. What were the consequences? Well, Eli and his sons were killed. And then one of uh, Eli's son's wives had a baby and named the baby Ichabod. The glory had departed from Israel. And, and so that travesty was the backdrop for Israel coming to Samuel and wanting a king like the other nations to fight their battles. They had misdiagnosed the problem. They believed the problem was that the nations around them were too powerful, when actually their real problem was idolatry and apostasy. And so in their idolatry, God gave them a king like they were asking for in, in Saul. And here, the sad irony is clear. Israel finds herself in 1 Samuel 31 in the same situation as chapter 4. That's what this king has achieved for them. They're in the same shoes. Ichabod, the glory has departed. Now notice in verse 2, the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Those weren't his only sons. We'll see another one show back up in 2 Samuel. 
But these are three of his sons. Verse 3, the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Now these verbs are horrifying. Notice, overtook, struck down, pressed hard. For, for Saul, justice happened the way Ernest Hemingway describes how bankruptcy happens. Gradually and then suddenly. Now notice in verse 4. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come that is, those outside the covenant. Circumcision is the covenant sign for the Abrahamic covenant. Lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. There's an old African proverb that I think is quite true. Every day for the thief, but one day is that of the owner. Every day for the thief, but there's coming a day which is the day for the owner. In other words, one may appear to get away with something, like Jim in Mark Twain's short story. They may get away for it or with it for a time. But there will be a day of reckoning. We need to believe that. There will be a day of reckoning when all the self-rule that our sin bought for us will vanish like a vapor. Saul was aware at the time of the ancient Near Eastern customs where enemy nations would come in and, and those who were mortally wounded on the battlefield, they would be tortured. And he wanted to avoid that, and so he tells his armor-bearer to kill him, but the armor-bearer was not willing because he feared. I don't think that it was he feared God. I don't know what he feared. Maybe he feared the consequences of killing the king. And so Saul took his own life. It's clear here that as death approaches, that Saul was more fearful of falling into the hands of the Philistines than he was of standing before his creator. That was one of his biggest problems. Now think about this. We have to read chapter 31 in light of chapter 30. Whereas in chapter 30, David's life was in peril, wasn't it? Remember when his men were about to come and kill him? And what did David do? He strengthened himself in the Lord. All right, that's what he did. And here... Saul finds no such strength as that. The habits of a lifetime reveal themselves in extreme circumstances. The habits of a lifetime reveal themselves in extreme circumstances. I saw that with the mirrors in that extreme circumstance last year. Habits of a lifetime. From his teen years, at least, we know that David was convinced that even a great giant from the Philistines was no match for the Lord of hosts. Saul, conversely, had, had developed a habit 
a lifelong habit of thinking little of God. God was weightless to Saul. And conversely, Saul regularly gave weight to his circumstances. You're going to give weight to something. That word is where we get the word glory. We're glory junkies. You will give glory to something. God will either be weighty to you or your circumstances will be weighty to you. Something will be weighty to you. And for Saul, it was his circumstances. Which meant that he wavered between inordinate fear or pompous pride, depending on the situation, depending on the circumstances. And here, inordinate fear leads to suicide. Now, there's a message that I could preach on suicide. We don't have time for that, but there are six suicides in the Bible. We're going to see two in this passage, him and his, his armor bearer. In none of the cases does Scripture directly evaluate the deed. Just like it doesn't directly evaluate polygamy, but it expects you to read polygamy through the lens of Genesis 2.24. One man, one woman. And in the same way, when we read about these suicides, all of those who commit suicide are deeply troubled persons. Life is a gift from God, and the unlawful taking of life is forbidden. That includes abortion at any stage, euthanasia, and suicide. And those who refuse to bow the knee to God's lordship over life and over death can maintain their desire for self-rule, self-determination only by ending their own lives which in the end is an illusion, isn't it? It's an illusion because there's always a day of reckoning. There's always a day of reckoning for our deeds in the body. Having said that, we need to recognize and be sympathetic to the reality of mental illness and to the fact that even Christians can fall into the, the state of deep depression. And in that state, they can commit rash and destructive actions against themselves, which are sinful, but also destructive. And that's why we need each other. Now, let me just say this. I don't think any of the six suicides we see in the Bible, I don't think any of these we could say were true believers. Generally, a person could get to that point, I would say, are without hope and have never truly had hope. But I also recognize that Christians can be inconsistent with their theology to the point that in their depression, hope is eclipsed by their depression, by their sadness, by their despair. And there have been examples of Christians who have struggled and contemplated suicide. Let me give you one case in point. William Cowper, the great hymn writer. He wrote the, the song that we all love to sing, There is a fountain 
filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And what kept him from committing suicide was his friend, another hymn writer, John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace. And so it just reminds us we need each other in this, what Paul calls, a groaning world. But another tragedy in all this is actually in what we don't hear from Saul. We do not, in the midst of the, of the turmoil here, hear cries for mercy. Unlike earlier when Saul had sent his goons to kill David. Remember that narrative? And we know from Psalm 59, the inscription in that psalm, that David wrote that psalm on that occasion when his life was endangered by Saul's men. David had prayed in Psalm 59, nothing like we see here with Saul. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. But now, with the Philistines attacking, Saul had no capacity to pray like that. The habits of a lifetime are revealed in extreme circumstances. And so he dies as he lived, hopeless, without hope and without God in this world. And of course, a dead king is going to beget hopelessness. Notice in verse 5. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Two suicides. The writer is driving home that the end game of trusting in all king replacements. And Saul was a parody of the true king. He was the king like the nations. The end game of all king replacements is futility and death. And verse 6 sums up that day in a nutshell. Notice verse 6. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Saul's haunting words from Samuel less than 24 hours earlier are echoed here. Meanwhile... As we saw last time in chapter 30, verse 18, David is recovering. David is rescuing. David is bringing back all that was lost by the Amalekites, capturing all the flocks and the herds. Oh, the contrast between this pseudo-king and the true king. The latter represents restoration and renewal on what's been broken and taken away by sin. The former represents hopelessness, life outside of God, outside of the true king. The end is death. The end is exile. We should be reading this and recognizing that as we are so tempted to trust in other rulers besides the true and living God. 
as he has come to us in his son. Notice in verse 7. Look at this consequence. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Don't miss the significance of this. God had given Israel the land. And through the agency of Joshua, whose name means the Lord is salvation, through the agency and the leadership of Joshua, this land had been won. And here they are surrendering it. And the verbs really tell the tale. Let's just go back through them real quickly. Verse 1, Israel fled, fell slain. Verse 2, the Philistines overtook, struck down. Verse 3, the battle pressed hard. Saul, badly wounded. Verse 4, thrust me through. Two times you read that. And then in verse 4, he fell upon the sword. And then in verse 5, he fell upon his sword and died. Thus Saul died, his three sons and so forth. Verse 7, Israel fled. His sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled. And on you could go on in verse 8. The Philistines stripped the slain. The three sons were fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head. They stripped off his armor. Verse 10, they fastened his body. That is, they nailed his body on the wall. And the next day the Philistines came and occupied the abandoned towns. Verse 8, this is the reversal of the promises made to Abraham. Why? Because they have broken covenant. The stipulations of the Mosaic covenant, they have broken. And now, judgment, exile has fallen on these people. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the lane, the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines. This is the parody of the Great Commission to carry the good news. You know what the Greek word there for good news is? The gospel. To carry the gospel. This is the gospel of the Philistines, which is no good news. To carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. So this is the, the last divestment of Saul's royal garments. He's, he, he, he's divested himself of them several times in 1 Samuel. For instance, when he, he lay naked before Samuel, and even the night before the, the, the witch at Endor, he had switched clothes. This is the final divestment these robes, these clothes, this armor representing his regal authority. And now they're gone forever. Our false hopes, our king replacements that rule us. And we wake up every day tempted by them, don't we? They will all one day be divested of their royal garments. We have to believe that. They will not come through for us. And I want you to note the Philistines evangelized this to carry the good news to their worship houses, to the house of their idols, and to the people. 
And I would submit to you the Philistine gospel, which is no gospel at all, is still proclaimed when the world believes it's triumphed over God and over God's people. Of course, it never does in spite of present appearances. We need to believe that. We're seeing a lot of nonsense in our culture. The Philistine gospel will never triumph over the true kingdom. It triumphs over parodies of the kingdom of God. Saul's was a parody. He was not the true king. But it will never triumph over the true kingdom of God. Why? Because no matter what happens in our culture, they can't put Jesus back in the tomb. And Saul was a parody. And that's driven here, driven home here in verse 10. Notice it says, They put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, the war goddess. They were worshiping the war goddess because they had won the war against Israel's God. That was their perception. They didn't realize that Israel's God was just using them to bring judgment on his covenant breakers. And they fastened, that is, his nailed his body to the wall of Bethshan. And just as the Philistines had once placed the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon, didn't go well for them, did it? Here they place the armor of Israel's dead king into the temple of Ashtoreth. And now Saul's corpse, his lifeless body, is nailed to the wall. This is horrifying. It should terrify us as it did the original audience. Indeed, it makes sense of why Israel was fleeing. All of Israel was fleeing because they knew what the Philistines were capable of. I say all, but not quite all. There were a people from Jabesh Gilead that did not flee. Now, do you remember them? We, were, we remember them because of chapter 11. Remember Nahash the Ammonite. Nahash, whose name means serpent. Nahash the Ammonite had come against the people of Jabesh Gilead. In fact, he was going to make a covenant with them by requiring them to cut out, gouge out their right eyes. They were almost willing to make that deal until God raised up Saul. At the very beginning of his ministry, his first act as the new king was to crush the head of the serpent. We think this is the true king. He delivered the people of Jabesh Gilead from the serpent. That was 40 years ago. He brought justice to Nahash. And they hadn't forgotten that. It had been 40 years. But understand, when a king rescues you, you're forever grateful. And you're forever devoted. And that brings us to the last part of this passage. We've seen when justice brings about judgment. How about when justice... And that is the justice that Saul brought to Nahash stirs mercy. Look with me in verse 11. So we close out this passage, this book. By the way, just for you trivia uh, junkies, 
in number of words, 1 Samuel is number 10. It's the 10th longest book in the Bible as far as number of words go. Jeremiah number 1. We're on that on Sunday nights. It says here in verse 11, But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men, I love that, God raised up a generation of valiant men and women. Valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons. Can you imagine the danger? They're making their way all the way through the night in enemy-occupied territory. And they go into their temple. They go into the worship temple of the Philistines. And they go in there and they take the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Now this is not uh, cremation. Israel did not observe cremation. We see the bones are left. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Such courage, such devotion, as we read this, the Spirit of God works that devotion in those who have ears to hear, eyes to see, doing what it takes to honor their rescuer. Saul had been their rescuer. As flawed as he was, he had rescued them. And now they were willing to do what it takes to honor their rescuer. Isn't that beautiful? Valiant men. But having said that, it shouldn't have come to this. It didn't have to be this way. If Saul had repented of his sin, if he had turned from his sin, and he had submitted himself to the priest who offered up the sacrifices for atonement for Saul's sin, for anyone who would believe, if he had just trusted in those animals that were sacrificed for his sins, that point to the one who would come. And if he had repented of his sins, things would have been different. There are examples of even more wicked kings than Saul that prove this. So, for instance, Manasseh. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. Incidentally, he, he reigned longer than any other king in Israel's history. He actually ruled Judah 55 years. And he was polytheistic, believing in many gods. He reversed all of the religious reform of his godly father, Hezekiah, did not honor his father. He engaged and promoted child sacrifices where you would sacrifice the children to appease the gods, just like we do in our country when we advocate for abortion and we're sacrificing to the gods of of the right to choose and careers and everything else. He advocated that. Legend tells us, tradition tells us, he was the one behind the murder of the prophet Isaiah, who tradition says was sown in two. And yet, hear these words from 2 Chronicles 33. A man like that could never be saved. Not so fast. 
Verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 33, when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty. And he heard his plea, and he brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I believe that was a conversion. Maybe the good news of the man he had killed, Isaiah, had finally borne fruit in his life. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. But unlike Manasseh, Saul had refused to hear God's prophet Samuel. Or things would have been different. If he had heard the word of the prophet, things would have been different. Or had he heard the words of Hannah in her song in chapter 2 verse 10 that says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Things would have been different. Or had he followed the poor example and learned from the poor example of Eli and his sons when God told them specifically when and how they were going to die because of their apostasy. Things would have been different for Saul. Saul is a microcosm of unbelieving Israel. When God gave Israel Saul... He said, look in the mirror. I'm giving you what your heart longs for. And what your heart longs for really is who you are. In Saul's experience and later in Israel's experience, we learn what the end game for idolatry always is. Death and exile. Death and exile. For Saul it was death. For Israel it would be exile. But again... Chapter 31 cannot be read without regard for chapter 30. The events are taking place simultaneously. Saul, a king like the nations, represents the end game for all misplaced hopes and false rulers. The end game is hopelessness, shame, and death. David, the true anointed king came to rescue, bring back what is lost. And his line, his seed, his offspring is where true hope is found. The only hope in this world. And so chapters 30 and 31 collectively point us to someone greater. Someone greater than Saul, certainly, but someone greater than David. Someone who would come and accomplish something infinitely greater than what David achieved. What David achieved in chapter 30 or what David achieved when he is enthroned as king. Ironically, to do this, this king, like Saul, was defeated by his enemies. At least apparently. Apparently. He too was handed over to the anti-God nations to be abused. But unlike Saul, whose body was fastened to the wall after his death, this one 
this greater king, his body was fastened to a cross unto death. And unlike Saul, it was not for his sins. It was for our sins. Our sins were imputed to this king. And like the people of Jabesh-Gilead, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, out of love, removed Jesus' lifeless body from that pierced position on the cross and gave it a proper burial. Three days later, two Marys and one Joanna show up to that tomb with spices to anoint his body. They came in spite of every evidence of defeat. Their king is dead. Their Messiah is dead. And yet their hearts, like the men of Jabez-Gilead, still treasured who he had been for them, what he had done for them, even though he apparently fell short of their expectations. But just as the people of Jabez-Gilead would be the first to be praised by the newly anointed king. Just look over real quickly to 2 Samuel 2. I want you to see this. Verse 5. David sent messengers to the men of Jabez-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Isn't that beautiful? Just as the people of Jabez-Gilead were the first to be praised by their newly anointed king, this faithful trio of women was rewarded with the first news of Jesus' resurrection. The angel said, He's not here. He is risen. And what that resurrection means for us is everything. The king's not dead. For every believer, it means this. Justice has rolled down like waters on us. Judgment, the judgment of justice has rolled down like waters on all of us, but in the substitute. But in the substitute, and that justice has been satisfied. That's what that resurrection indicates. So how much more should we, even us, more fervently than the, the men of Jabez-Gilead, who were saved physically by a rotten king who is now dead, how much more fervently should we be? Because our king isn't dead. And if we get that, we will not shrink back when it becomes costly. And, it, and if all the trends continue, it appears that it will be. It'll become more costly. There are, there are candidates today. This isn't a political pulpit, but the reality is there are candidates running for president promising crackdowns of religious liberty and even ensuring penalties. Have you seen this? For Christians who seek to convert certain kinds of sinners to Christ. That's what might be coming. But we serve a far better king than Saul. One that can't be put back in the grave. 
And we aren't just honoring his dead body. We are worshiping and serving one who's been raised from the dead, who reigns at the right hand of the Father, who's promised to return in power and glory, to recover and to rescue and to bring back all that's been lost by sin, death, and the devil. And so Saul's tragic life, his tragic end, his death, calls us to consider the futility of all king replacements. The king replacements that we are drawn to will fail you 100% of the time. Their royal garbs will be taken from them in time. But David's rise as king, as we're going to see in 2 Samuel. We start that next week, be praying. David's rise as king invites us to remember, there shall be a king over all. Not like the nations but one who will fight and has fought all of our battles for us. And this book would bid us to behold that king. Crucified, resurrected, ascended, ruling at the right hand of God forevermore. Isn't that hopeful? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that we have a better king. And Lord, when we are tempted to look for king replacements, may your spirit remind us of that truth. We have a better king. We have a king who has inaugurated a kingdom that one day will encompass the entire cosmos. Every nook and cranny of this cosmos would be filled with his glory his saving reign, his authority, and his beauty. And Lord, we as the people of God, the church of Christ, are an outpost of that kingdom. Thank you. And thank you for the down payment of the Spirit guaranteeing our inheritance. An inheritance of that kingdom. And Father, we pray that as we are tempted each day to look to king replacements, we would remember the futility of Saul, the hopelessness and the end game of Saul's reign. And we could remember David who rises to power as the true king and does many great things for the people of God. But ultimately, Lord, David is just a sign, just a type, a picture of the greater one to come. Lord, give us eyes to behold him, to love him. And Lord, like the men of Jabez Gilead, valiant men, to risk our comforts, risk our lives even if it need be, to honor him because he's not dead. He's very much alive and will be forevermore. And we ask these things now praying Lord, even if those who've never trusted in Jesus, Lord, that they would trust in him today. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. As we stand.